It's almost impossible to imagine that a person of sound mind, someone not unlike you or I, would willingly confess to a crime they didn't commit. The act of constructing a false confession seems even more ludicrous when the crime in question is none other than a triple homicide involving your best friend and their family. However, this is precisely what Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay assert happened to them. Claiming that their confession to the brutal murder of Atif's parents and sister was no more than an act, constructed to appease undercover police officers pretending to be crime bosses as part of a Mr. Big Sting operation. Were Atif and Sebastian telling the truth? Are they simply opportunistic, cold-hearted killers? To answer these questions, we must start at the beginning of the case. On the evening of July 12, 1994, in the state of Washington, Atif Rafay and Sebastian Burns departed from the Rafay family home in Bellevue to get dinner and catch a movie about a 10-minute drive south in the neighborhood of Factoria. After dining together at the keg, the two 18-year-old boys headed across the street to catch a 9.40 p.m. showing of The Lion King at the Factoria Cinema. Some theater employees recalled seeing Burns and Rafay at the theater as the pair reported a curtain malfunction shortly before their movie began, although no employee could corroborate that they were in fact at the theater after 10 p.m. In their statements to police, the boys said that after watching The Lion King, they drove to another restaurant called Steve's Broiler in downtown Seattle, somewhere around midnight. After this, the pair attempted to enter a nightclub, but were told that they were too late to enter. They eventually went back to the restaurant to use the bathroom before making the 25 to 30 minute car ride home. At 2 a.m., on July 13th, Sebastian Burns placed a call to 911 after the pair arrived back at the Rafay family home to report, quote, some form of break-in. Burns indicated to the 911 operator that there was blood all over and that Atif's parents appeared to be dead. The two boys waited outside the home for police to arrive. When police did arrive at the scene, they noticed a tremendous amount of blood had been tracked throughout the property. There was blood all along the carpets and walls throughout the house, and particularly in the downstairs bathroom. Rafay's father, mother, and sister were found brutally bludgeoned within the home. Their murder weapon was never recovered, although it was presumed to be a baseball bat. Sultana, Atif Rafay's mother, was found nearby her husband, Dr. Tariq Rafay who was found in his bedroom where he was presumed to be beaten to death whilst he was sleeping. When the police entered the house, they reported hearing moaning from Atif's sister's room. Basma Rafay, Atif's sister, had been mortally wounded and died in the hospital shortly after the attack. Atif Rafay and Sebastian Burns were apprehended by police at the scene of the crime, and they were both brought into the Bellevue police station for questioning. When they were brought in, Neither of the boys had any noticeable blood on their clothing, despite a single droplet of blood on a tea for Faye, which could hypothetically be explained from when the boys walked through the house prior to calling 911. On July 14th, just a day after the triple homicide, Atif and Sebastian provided videotape statements to Washington police. Another day later, on July 15th, the boys returned to Canada, although there is some dispute over the legality of their return. The Bellevue Police Department claims that the two fled to Canada without permission, essentially further implicating their possible guilt and involvement in the crimes. However, 
The defense claims that the boys first contacted the Canadian consulate and obtained permission from the Bellevue Police Department to return to their families in Canada. Sebastian Burns had only been visiting the Raffae family on vacation, while Satif Raffae would return home to Vancouver to live with the Burnses for some time. Regardless of the exact legal technicalities surrounding their return to Canada, the fact remains that the Bellevue Police Department had no definitive physical evidence that could link Atif and Sebastian to the crimes. In fact, the only physical evidence present at the crime scene was a single hair of Caucasian origin found in the shower near the master bedroom, diluted blood within the shower stall, and a footprint within the garage. Due to the lack of evidence to detain or arrest either of the boys, it was likely not technically illegal for them to return to Canada. If the boys were guilty, the supposed fleeing undoubtedly looked suspicious. Although if they were innocent, a return to their country of origin would be likely. As neither 18-year-old had any other family in Washington, as the Raffae family had only recently immigrated to the United States from Canada. Despite having a probable explanation, the boys' return to Canada undoubtedly placed suspicion on the pair. Before discussing the intricacies of Canadian undercover investigations, we must establish what exact policing methods and techniques were used to persuade a confession. In this case, a policing tactic nicknamed the Mr. Big Technique was used. The Mr. Big Technique is a uniquely Canadian practice as it's explicitly illegal in many countries internationally, under concerns of entrapment. Essentially, a Mr. Big operation is reserved only for serious crimes in Canada, where there is not enough physical evidence that links the suspect to the crime. This technique is still in use to this day, although it faces more restrictions than in times past after a 2014 Supreme Court amendment which effectively tightened the requirements for confessions extracted by Mr. Big investigations. Essentially, a Mr. Big operation is where several undercover police officers lure suspects of a serious crime into a fake criminal organization. Undercover officers assume the roles of gang members to befriend a suspect and suggest that they join the organization as well. The undercover officers then involve the suspect in some minor, petty crimes, for a generous financial benefit. This involvement in smaller crimes also looks bad before a jury, as the prosecution often uses it to prove that the individual in question is some form of habitual repeat offender. Once the suspect demonstrates a commitment to the fake criminal organization, they are effectively interviewed for a higher paying position by a so-called Mr. Big, also known as the criminal organization's leader. Although, it should be noted that this meeting with the crime boss, or Mr. Big, comes at a steep price. Before a meeting, the suspect is asked to confess to a crime they're suspected of committing, either as a form of insurance or so that Mr. Big could make the problem disappear. I think it's quite apparent that there are an array of ethical and entrapment concerns when using this technique. Nonetheless, the Mr. Big technique was the policing method of choice for the RCMP, once Atif Raffae and Sebastian Burns had returned to Canada. Although Mr. Big investigations are illegal in the U.S., since the boys had willingly crossed the border, they found themselves amid a sting operation at just 19 years of age. The Bellevue Police Department reached out to the RCMP in January of 1995 for assistance in their investigation, 
the RCMP developed 12 steps to elicit a confession from the boys. The first meeting occurred on April 11, 1995, where Corporal Gary Shinkarok staged a meeting with Sebastian outside of a hair salon by telling Burns that he had been locked out of his car and needed a ride to his hotel. Burns obliged and casually mentioned that he needed $200,000 for an upcoming film project he was planning. To this, Corporal Shinkarok replied that he would introduce him to Sergeant Al Hazlett, who would later become Mr. Big as a possible investor. Two days after, on April 13th, Sergeant Hazlett, as Mr. Big, contacted Burns and asked him to transport a stolen car back to Vancouver for $200. Burns expressed dissatisfaction with the measly $200 in exchange for a stolen car and told Mr. Big that he wanted to be in more lucrative operations, such as drug dealing or even being a hitman. This hitman comment would come back to haunt Burns in court as it was an incredibly strong point for the prosecution. Nearly half a month later, on May 6th, Burns met Corporal Shinkarok at the Four Seasons Hotel, where another undercover officer delivered a large amount of money to him. Shinkarok told Burns that he had killed a man who was going to stand witness in a colleague's trial, which led to Burns disclosing for the first time that he and a Atif were suspects in the Rafay family murders. During this meeting, Burns said that he would not have, quote, any dilemma with killing someone for the fake criminal organization and indicated that he wanted to learn more about the destruction of evidence and what exact evidence the Bellevue police had on the pair. On June 15th to the 16th, Shinkarok asked Burns if he was interested in making some money and told him to bring along a friend. Likely, the RCMP expected Burns to bring along his suspected partner in crime, Atif Rafay. However, Burns instead recruited the pair's housemate and long-term friend, Jimmy Miyoshi, into the operation. For two days, Sebastian and Jimmy laundered $100,000 into various ATMs, eventually receiving $2,000 from Hazlett for their work. After the job was done, Burns told Miyoshi, quote, this has been the coolest thing I ever done, and I couldn't ask for anything more. It should be noted that this entire time, since the beginning of the RCMP investigation, that Ativ and Sebastian's phones had been tapped, and neither had made mention of the homicides. On June 20th, the two undercover officers showed up to Burns' house unannounced. When they asked to speak to Burns inside, he stated that he believed his house was bugged. This is possibly noteworthy because of the wiretaps. Despite having over 4,000 hours of footage, the wiretaps resulted in no leads, which is not typical when suspects are guilty. On June 28th and the 29th, the heavy manipulation by undercover officers would begin. The RCMP was finally closing in on what they believed would be an incriminating confession. Burns and Miyoshi returned to Victoria, B.C. for a second time to launder more money. When meeting up with Hazlett, he told Burns that the Bellevue Police Department had him in a, quote, pretty big fucking way. Hazlett stated that the Bellevue Police Department had evidence in the form of Burns' DNA. They stated that it was his hair in the shower that was mixed with the victim's blood and his fingerprints on a box within the house. Burns repeatedly denied the sergeant's attempts to talk about the details of the murder, 
but he also expressed a concern that Hazlett was an undercover cop. On July 18th, more than half a month later, Hazlett showed Burns a fake Bellevue Police Department memorandum that implied the police would shortly call a press conference and lay charges against Sebastian and Atif once the DNA of the hair in the shower had been cultured. Of course, all of this information was falsified. Once reading the report, Sebastian Burns insisted that all the evidence listed had perfectly innocent explanations, although he also later suggested that he wanted help destroying the evidence. Sergeant Hazlett explained to Burns that he could not destroy the evidence unless he knew the details of the crime. Clearly, the RCMP officers were attempting to elicit information through a false promise of the destruction of evidence. After this, Burns divulged some details of the crime, although it should be noted that within his confession, he did not reveal any details that were previously unknown to police or the media. A hidden camera recorded Burns' confession, and it would later be used in a Washington courtroom roughly half a decade after it was recorded. The next day, on July 19th, Hazlett told Sebastian to call Atif and asked him to meet them in Victoria, undoubtedly to get Atif's side of the confession. Upon arrival, Atif stated that he had watched Burns kill his mother, but he himself had not participated in the killings. Atif also stated that his motivation for the crimes was to, quote, become richer and more prosperous and successful. In the final part of the operation, roughly a week later, on July 27th, Burns met with Miyoshi, who ended up telling Hazlett that he had known about the plan to kill Rafay's parents a month before the homicides took place. At this point, the RCMP had what they considered to be a complete and voluntary confession from the three 19-year-old boys, although this confession would provide controversial grounds of debate to this day, as the pair adamantly assert their innocence and claim their confessions were simply fake and coerced. Despite now having the evidence to go to trial, Sebastian and Atif would not be deported to the States for another six years due to legal technicalities around extradition and the death penalty. Canada has federally abolished the death penalty since 1976, deeming it an inhumane punishment that degrades the integrity of the justice system. The Minister of Justice at the time of Sebastian and Atif's proposed extradition, Alan Rock, had signed a constitutional order for surrender to have the two sent to Washington regardless of the death penalty. However, this motion was later overturned by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2001. The Supreme Court essentially stated that the decision of the Minister of Justice violated Sebastian and Atif's rights under Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Interestingly enough, one of the rationales for this decision was a recent history of miscarriages of justice in Canada, wherein the death penalty effectively eliminates all possible remedies for wrongful conviction. After the Supreme Court's decision, the pair were extradited to the United States under an agreement to not seek the death penalty, but instead life imprisonment without parole. Next, we come to the trial process. Although we reviewed some of the evidence throughout the case, we'll review the prosecutor's arguments for guilt more closely before analyzing the case as a whole. Needless to say, with the confession provided by the RCMP, the prosecution was in incredibly good shape going into the trial. 
The most interesting part about the prosecution's case was that the confession was permitted in Washington courtrooms despite being elicited by a technique that's explicitly illegal within the state. Besides the included confession tapes from the Mr. Big operation, there was not much in the way of actual physical evidence. Even the Caucasian hair in the shower could not be linked to Sebastian by DNA. Although only providing a racial profile, this piece of evidence was quite damning in court when presented alongside Sebastian's confession tape claim to have showered after committing the murders. Regardless, any physical evidence in the case could not be linked to either Sebastian or Atif, proving to be of little use in the trial. In terms of motive, the prosecution presented that Atif and Sebastian were financially motivated by inheritance which is ultimately corroborated by a thief on the confession tape. The prosecution also stated that the burglary of the house appeared staged. Although this alone does not directly implicate the boys as the perpetrators, as anyone could have staged the house. Essentially, the prosecution's entire case was built upon the validity and truthfulness of the boys' confessions, which were procured by tactics that are illegal in the state of Washington and questionable at best. With this confession tape evidence, the prosecution was able to construct a case they would likely win. On the other hand, the defense for Sebastian Burns and Atifra Fay constructed a much more complex case than the prosecution, as they were tasked with the seemingly impossible mission of causing a reasonable doubt in a case that appeared to be fairly open and shut. When researching the defense's case, I found it particularly interesting that there appeared to be several excluded expert witnesses. For instance, Richard Leo, an associate professor of criminology and psychology at the University of California, who had previously testified in court and extensively researched the concept of false confessions, was ultimately excluded from testifying. The state and the court ultimately argued that this witness was not needed, as the jury was allegedly fully capable of assessing the reliability of the confessions on their own. Furthermore, the expert testimony of Michael Levine, a former undercover DA specialist who was going to testify that the RCMP's investigation had failed to meet U.S. professional standards and likely produced confessions that were unreliable or false, was also excluded from testifying in this case. Another expert, Ross Gardner, who was a blood spatter analyst, believed that the blood splatters produced could only be explained by three assailants and not two alone was also excluded from testifying. The exclusion of expert witnesses for a myriad of reasons is commonplace in trials. However, it may be important that the jury never heard testimony from an expert regarding false confessions and the validity of the Mr. Big technique when analyzing the verdict and the case as a whole. Another possibly large piece of evidence in establishing a reasonable doubt that was excluded was the possibility of other suspects in the homicide. I personally don't think that these tips should be taken with any serious weight, especially because they were never fully investigated by police. However, the fact remains that the exclusion of the possibility of other perpetrators could have further strengthened the prosecution's case. In this particular case, there were three tips that the defense continues to focus on to this day as an alternative explanation to the homicides. Firstly, an RCMP informant had contacted a constable explaining that he had been offered a $20,000 contract just two days before the homicide in exchange for the death of an East Indian family 
who had previously lived in Vancouver, Canada, before moving to Bellevue, Washington. The informant was allegedly trustworthy, having provided accurate information in two previous homicides, although the tip was never regarded as a serious lead by the Bellevue Police Department. A second tip came in from an FBI informant who claimed that just five days before the homicides, a member of a, quote, militant Islamic faction said that Dr. Tariq Rafay should die due to his beliefs and teachings about Islam. Most notably, this FBI informant alleged that several days after the homicides, a member of this faction had come to their home where he had observed him holding a baseball bat with some other men around a car. This piece of information was only notable as the suspected murder weapon had not yet been revealed to the public, and the informant's description appeared to match the suspected murder weapon. This lead was also not followed up. Lastly, another tip came from the Seattle Police Intelligence Division, who allegedly held information that FUQRA, a radical religious sect, was apparently involved in the homicides. The defense alleges that these leads were never fully pursued by the Bellevue Police Department, who instead focused on Atif and Sebastian as the only possible suspects. Although, the trial court ultimately ruled that these alternative theories should also be excluded from the courtroom, as they were simply too speculative in nature. Aside from all the excluded evidence for Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay's defense, there was seemingly no convincing legal argument left to make. With a taped confession and the exclusion of any evidence that might question its legitimacy, it seems to me that there was an extreme lack of evidence for the defense. Ultimately, the defense's case was weak in comparison to the prosecution because much of their possible means of establishing a reasonable doubt was excluded. Atif Rafay and Sebastian Burns elected to have their trial by jury, who ended up finding them guilty of the murders of Dr. Tariq Rafay, Sultana Rafay, and Basma Rafay, almost 10 years after the commission of the crimes. Specifically, they were both found guilty of three counts of aggravated murder, facing an imprisonment sentence of three concurrent life sentences with no possibility of parole. Despite not confessing to taking place in the actual homicides, Atif faced an equal sentence to Sebastian due to his alleged close involvement with his family's death. Essentially, Atif Rafay and Sebastian Burns will spend the rest of their lives imprisoned with no conceivable possibility of release unless they can successfully win an appeal. The pair attempted to appeal their decision in 2011, but the appeal request was denied by the Supreme Court of Washington. As was mentioned previously, the Supreme Court of Canada in 2014 ruled that Mr. Big Operation should be allowed in courts only with the consideration of new guidelines regarding the validity of such confessions. With this decision, another appeal was filed for the Rafay Burns case. This most recent appeal in 2014 is yet to be brought to fruition, as the two continue to serve their time at the Washington State Penitentiary. In some ways, this appeal appears to be one of the last possible options in an attempt to have their sentences overturned. Both men are currently being held at a maximum security penitentiary with other violent offenders. Since his time in prison, Atif Rafay has become an advocate for the implementation of educational programs within penitentiaries and has written an article focusing on his experience titled On the Margins of Freedom, published by The Walrus. 
In contrast, prison life has apparently taken a great toll on Sebastian Burns. Sebastian has been involved in several infractions since his arrest and has been assaulted by inmates on multiple occasions. Sebastian has also allegedly developed an eating disorder and suffers from underlying mental health concerns since his admittance to prison. Sebastian spends much of his time in solitary confinement. Before heading into my personal analysis of this case, I should make clear that I am not a lawyer or criminal justice professional. Rather, I'm just a girl who likes to research case files while working on a bachelor's of criminology. With that said, none of my opinions should be considered to be anything more than mere speculation for the purpose of criticism and critique by discussing the broader implications of this case within the criminal justice system. When going through points to analyze in this case, we'll first discuss the legal guilt, also known as guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, before proceeding to the probability of the two being the actual perpetrators of the homicides. In terms of legal guilt, I am personally of the belief that there is an existing reasonable doubt in this case, and the pair should not have been convicted based on the evidence presented in court. Of course, the confession was the strongest piece of evidence for the prosecution, as all other evidence could not be linked to the boys or had a probable alternative explanation. Consider, for example, the Caucasian hair found in the shower. It was never definitively linked to Sebastian by DNA, although, if it hypothetically were, it could be explained by the fact that Sebastian had already been staying at the Rafay home for a week prior to the homicide and likely would have had to shower within that time. Since the evidence besides the confession was quite weak, the most important point of analysis is the confession itself. When examining the validity of the confession and if it should have been deemed admissible in the courtroom, we must ask ourselves the following questions. Would someone admit to a crime they didn't commit? And if so, why? Furthermore, should techniques considered illegal in one country still be permissible when the investigation took place in a country where the techniques are considered legal? To speculate on the first question, the answer is surprisingly more straightforward than one would think when reviewing some existing literature on false confessions under the Mr. Big technique. As was mentioned previously, the Mr. Big technique is uniquely Canadian, as it's perceived as entrapment under U.S. and other international laws. The RCMP reported that before 2004, encompassing the time of the Rafay family murders, the Mr. Big Technique boasted a 75% confession rate and a 95% conviction rate when used. Note that Statistics Canada in 2017 and 2018 stated that the conviction rate overall amongst those charged in adult court was only 62%. Smith, Stinson, and Patry's article titled Using the Mr. Big Technique to Elicit Confessions, Successful Innovation or Dangerous Development in the Canadian Legal System, states that there is generally a lack of empirical evidence on the technique's effectiveness. Although the exact percentage of false confessions procured by the Mr. Big technique is generally unknown, it's suspected that confessions like these, where the suspect retracts their confession shortly after the interrogation, are particularly suspicious. These types of confessions are referred to as coerced compliant confessions wherein an individual falsely confesses when they know they are not guilty of a crime, simply to escape the situation they are in or to gain some sort of perceived reward. In this case, Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay had both a financial motivation to confess and a motivation to confess for the promise of the destruction of incriminating evidence. 
Of course, the easiest and even the most plausible explanation for this type of behavior is guilt. Although it's not impossible to believe an innocent person would do almost anything to maintain their innocence when a primary suspect, it's conceivable, in my opinion, that Atifa Fay and Sebastian Burns, or anyone else subject to the Mr. Big technique, particularly before 2014, could have given a coerced, compliant confession. In my personal opinion, I see no reason for the Mr. Big technique to continue to be permissible under Canadian law. Due to the heightened possibility of entrapment and coercion, although some confessions procured by the Mr. Big technique undoubtedly put guilty people behind bars, I think the total harm from the permissibility of such a technique outweighs the potential good. To further substantiate this opinion, we should go through some of the possible implications to using the Mr. Big technique that was outlined in Smith, Stinson, and Patry's article. Firstly, investigators going into Mr. Big investigations appear to be biased towards labeling the suspect as guilty and deceptive, since there's no way of law enforcement to be completely sure of deception, as polygraphs and body language to indicate lying is regarded as ineffective in academic circles. These perceptions of guilt are damaging, as such perceptions have been linked to police exerting more pressure on suspects. And asking guilt-presumptive questions, which offer no alternative to complete guilt. Furthermore, suspects are financially motivated to continue speaking with police officers, as often primary suspects in high-profile crimes have difficulty securing job opportunities. Particularly because Atif and Sebastian were just out of high school, a financial motivation to continue speaking with. And moving up the ranks of a criminal organization, even if on false pretenses, is not far-fetched. For suspects in Mr. Big investigations, there are also no clear drawbacks to confessing, even if the confession is false. Although it's likely hard to understand or wrap your head around why someone may falsely confess, it's a terrifying reality, as a number of recent DNA exonerations have taken place by the Innocence Project. Where suspects have, in fact, given false confessions that have led to their imprisonment. For these reasons, I think policing tactics such as the Mr. Big technique should not be permissible in Canadian courtrooms or any other court internationally. The risks of miscarriages of justice are simply too high for this policing tactic. I also read a summary provided by the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. Which outlines the new conditions applied to Mr. Big confessions after 2014, and I still think that the existing risk is too high. Even with these additional considerations, such as the level of detail in the confession and the discovery of additional evidence, these standards are all incredibly individualistic to the case and don't provide rigid outlines for police conduct in these styles of investigation. For these reasons, I believe that there is an existing reasonable doubt in this case. The confession itself is suspect for all the aforementioned reasons, and therefore, I am not personally of the belief that Atifa Fay and Sebastian Burns should have been convicted for these crimes. However, with that said, legal guilt is completely different from actual guilt, as we'll observe in episodes to come. Often, people who are deemed legally guilty are in actuality innocent, and sometimes. Those who find themselves granted an acquittal may have been the actual perpetrators of crime. I personally think that there's an extreme lack of evidence in this case. 
so determining any form of guilt or innocence is extremely hard. For this reason, I think it's appropriate to say that although I'm inclined to believe that Sebastian and Atif did not commit these murders, it's still incredibly probable that they did in fact commit these crimes. To explain my position, let's go through some of the evidence presented by both the prosecution and the defense. In terms of the prosecution's case, the most critical piece of evidence was the confession itself, which we already discussed the possible implications of. There were some additional incredibly suspicious elements of the investigation, although they could be explained by the pair simply lacking intelligence and world experience. Both Atif and Sebastian were 19 at the time of the investigation, and although they were fully grown adults in the eyes of the law, we know human brains and reasoning are still not fully developed at this age, and may be even more vulnerable to police manipulation for this reason. Burns stated throughout the investigation that he would have no qualms over being a hitman for the organization. Of course, this could be explained by him being a cold and calculated killer although his actions altogether hardly seem calculated or even remotely smart. In fact, this is one of the reasons I lean toward the side of innocence. It's hard for me to believe a kid who couldn't even identify people who are in all likelihood, obviously undercover police officers, pulled off a quote-unquote perfect crime that was devoid of any definitive physical evidence. On the prosecution side, much of their evidence could seemingly be explained by alternative reasons. For instance, consider that the prosecution claimed that the boys intentionally went up to employees at the movie theater to build their alibi, although it would be completely normal for them to report this for no other reason than the curtain malfunctioning. Additionally, one detail provided by the defense regarding the confession states that Sebastian incorrectly described the reality of Basma's homicide. In his confession, Sebastian claimed that Basma had walked around the room after being attacked, a theory that was publicized in the media despite not reflecting reality. The expert hired by the state claims that Basma had, in fact, not walked around after being attacked, but had rather been moved from her bed to the floor. It hypothetically wouldn't be difficult to construct a falsified story that sounds convincing due to their close proximity to the crimes. Another thing I find particularly curious if the two were guilty is the fact that they never spoke of committing the crimes on the more than 4,000 hours of footage recorded by the RCMP. Sebastian did indicate to Hazlett during the investigation that he believed his home had been bugged. However, this was quite late into the investigation, and it's uncertain if he had this belief the entire time. Despite this, I still find the alternative explanations provided by the defense to be unlikely as well. This entire case appears to be a bureaucratic mess, in which we may never know what truly happened that night due to all the doubt placed on both sides. It's possible that this case will always be hidden behind a curtain of mystery, unless Atif or Sebastian stop asserting their innocence, or an appeal before the Supreme Court is actually approved. To leave you with a final question to consider when you come up with your own opinion on this case, when you put yourself in the shoes of a suspect under the Mr. Big technique, would you ever knowingly lie to appease someone you perceive to be a crime boss, even if not for financial motivations, perhaps even just out of a fear for your own safety? Maybe you wouldn't, 
but the research certainly suggests it's possible, despite being completely legal across Canadian borders. 